Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am the editor of Editor Town, Neil Pollock, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, and your host of this weekly exploration into the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk about a show about uh, Koreans in Japan called Pachinko, based on a popular novel. William Schwartz, our resident Korea expert, will be here to break that show down for us. And we're also going to talk to Stephen Garrett about the new trailer for the new Avatar movie, which has appeared and is now airing exclusively in cinemas before the new Doctor Strange movie, which is the only movie in cinemas this week, at least in some cinemas this week. And we're also going to talk to Stephen about the new Doctor Strange movie, which he has seen and which I have also seen. And that's going to come up right after this very strange musical interlude. We'll be right back. Well, it's another month of the year, which means there's another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie <laughs> opening. A rare event, a Marvel movie. <laughs> it's like like a cicada every seven years. Every seven weeks. <laughs> I feel like this week's one is, is, is a fairly large uh, event movie as Marvel movies go. Yeah. Uh, it is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And it opened this week, and Stephen Garrett has seen it and reviewed it for us, and I have seen it, and I will assist him in reviewing it uh, for us as well. I, I, I feel like I should assist you because I feel like your depth of knowledge of Marvel Comics is much deeper than mine, which is barely existent. I would say that is that is true. <laughs> I'm, rare, I'm one of those rare people who's just an extremely cool bro who just happens to know. A lot. I think these days, to be an extremely cool bro, you have to know something about comic books, right? Yeah. So I, I got a, I got about a forty year head start. So all right. So um, <laughs> Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now you, you gave it a review. I wouldn't say it was a lukewarm. I would say you enjoyed the movie. Oh, for sure. Solid. It was a solid two bowl of popcorn fun ride through the multiverse yeah. um, with lots, lots of cool action and the usual solid Marvel casting and, you know, there's lots of humor. I I feel like I liked it more than you did though. And I was really watching it. I was, I mean, I was watching it for like Marvel continuity, which, you know, it it did fine. And I'm totally aware of all that. And there were lots of Easter eggs for Marvel fans, but what I really enjoyed about this movie, it was the Sam Raimi Ness. Oh Yeah. Me too. Absolutely. It's directed by Sam Raimi, who directed the Evil Dead movies and also directed the first two uh, Spider-Man movies before the Marvel Cinematic Universe ever existed. And he directed one of the scariest and and weirdest horror movies you'll ever see, Drag Me to Hell. And there was a lot of Drag Me to Hell in this movie. You know, it was it was kind of like taking. B movie, midnight movie, um, Fantastic Fest, which is an out, which is an Austin thing of like cult movie. It's an Austin cult movie festival. It was kind of taking that Fantastic Fest aesthetic and showing it to a mainstream global audience. And there was a lot 
of like creepy skeletons and weird ghosts and zombies. And that was maybe at most 20% of the movie, but what a 20%. For sure. Yeah, no, it's funny. I took my daughter who's 13 and, and, you know, kind of Marvel agnostic, right? But she's seen enough to know what it is, including Doctor Strange, the the first one, which was one of the few Marvel movies she was actually kind of interested in seeing and really enjoyed. But she said it when this ended, she was like, God, it was really scary. And I was like, oh, I guess it was scary. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the Raimi of it all is what makes it. I think what's fascinating is that this didn't start with him as the main first choice for director. He was a replacement, wasn't he, for the, the original guy who directed the, the first Doctor Strange, apparently. I, you know, I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I do know that like he he really put his mark on this movie while still keeping it within the Marvel continuity. I mean, he still had all the you know, basically this is a sequel to WandaVision, the, the, the TV. Series. Yeah, it's essentially what this is, because, you know, Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, is, is seeking uh, her lost sons who she who did don't really they're imaginary. She created them uh, in, in our reality, but apparently in the in the many multiverses, they're still out there and they're just as annoying in other multiverses. Billy and Tommy. Jesus. I know, right? These are the most, I'm like, how, how can you love these children? They're so lame and generic. They're so lame. That's why I gave it, look, that's why I dinged it as a solid but not great movie because it's all about her search for Billy and Tommy, the most insipid 10-year-old twins you've ever seen. Honestly, they they sit around watching Snow White. Are you kidding me? What the hell? What is up with these two? They're horrible. They're horrible. But the but the rest of the movie is so good. I mean, you have this new character, America Chavez. Yeah, she's cool. Yeah, well, you know, she comes from some multiverse land where she lived on a planet with her lesbian moms and she <laughs> punched star holes through reality. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? You know, but she but she was she was she at least had some spunk and she totally. was fun to watch. You know, she had it was she was she was handled well. And you know, Benedict Cumberbatch really gives it gives it all he's got in in, in many different iterations of Doctor Strangers, multiverse after multiverse. And then for the Marvel Easter egg people, there's the uh, introduction of the Illuminati, which is like in one in some Marvel realities, there's like secret council of superheroes. It's sort of like a, like an alternate reality Avengers, and and that that stuff I thought was really cool. And man, what a gruesome action scene they get too! Holy cow! It's like you have Easter eggs, and then somebody comes and stomps on all the Easter eggs and breaks all the shells and like just renders it. Yeah like rends it apart. It's it's kind of wild. It was great. And you know the the scene where my favorite scene. Well, I liked the ghosts. You know, the where like Dr. <laughs> Zombie Dr. Strange had the ghosts. Zombie Dr. Strange had had the ghosts surrounding him and they were fighting, you know, the Scarlet Witch in the temple. That that was that was cool. But my favorite scene was was much simpler. It's the one where Wanda chases him, um the our protagonist through this sort of tunnel and she's like staggering through like a zombie herself, all blood, all covered in blood. And there are these shots of like these, this door, like it's just kind of sweating water and it's like real tense. And it was really, I was like, wow, I was like this is actually good movie making. Well, it's Raimi, right? I mean, it goes back to Raimi. It's such a smart movie. Yeah. And, and, and I think, look, Ramey, I, you've, you've mentioned movies he's done. He's, 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 I feel like he's always been kind of underrated. The guy has Catholic taste. He's made lots of different types of movies. He's done dramas. He's done Westerns. He's done, you know, 
a supernatural films. He did, you know, what was it? The Dark Man or whatever, which is like Dark Man with Liam Neeson. Early 90s superhero movie, you know. So the guy's always kind of. A, but when he was chosen, I remember 20 years ago when he was chosen to do Spider-Man. I was like, why the hell is he doing Spider-Man? Like, I did not get that connection at all. And then when I saw the movie that he made, I thought, wow, that's Sam Raimi. I didn't know he could do, you know, bubblegum pop culture um, you know, grand operatic superhero movies. That's wild. I mean, he did first. He first of all, he did those Spider-Man movies too. Those are two of the highest grossing movies of all time. But if he's a dark horse director, he's certainly not going to be anymore after this movie. No, I, I actually what I what I meant to establish was that he clearly had his bona fides as a superhero guy. So it seemed like a no brainer that he would do Doctor Strange. But to your point, the fact that he really that they let him go so dark. And go really, frankly, back to his Evil Dead roots, you know, to a certain extent for this kind of dark, dark turn is pretty fantastic of Marvel. Yeah. And, and it may, I, you know, I think it makes for a, a much more interesting than average summer popcorn movie. For sure. Yeah. For me, you know, look, I, I, all of that makes it really worth seeing. But honestly, uh, I, I just I can't get over what is a billion Tommy. I know. Billy and Tommy, the worst. And they are the emotional engine of this movie, right? That is why Scarlet Witch does everything she does. It's all for them. And then, frankly, you know, the other uh, emotional uh, heartstring uh, storyline is Doctor Strange and Christine Palmer. And I just didn't find her that interesting at all. All the different Rachel, well, there are only two different Rachel McAdams in the movie, but, you know, it was all more kind of like this kind of pensive idea of his amorous longing instead of really feeling his yeah they didn't have a lot of chemistry but you know rachel mcadams is is, is, you know she knows how to be in a movie i don't know it wasn't horrible she knows how to wear a jumpsuit yeah Yeah, i liked her no no i mean i I didn't like any any of the that stuff although i i felt like the the america chavez story uh worked pretty well that was the sort of the other third major plot line that I thought, you know, in terms of a comic book movie, I thought that that worked pretty well, but all the stuff around it, all the superhero fights, all the action, all the set pieces, all the horror elements, that was just all just really good. And you just had to just sort of just wait for, I was hoping Billy and Tommy might get decapitated or like <laughs> melted or electrocuted or like, you know, is that zapped to hell, but they just sat there and, and cried and, and and never no version of them was ever harmed. I'm sure there's a multiverse version out there that's where they get really harmed, like horribly, horribly, Hor- horribly harmed, mutilated. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's like it's like come on, come, like, come on, Wanda, get a grip, Jesus. So yeah, you're right. All that stuff was weak, but I you, you gotta give. You got to give it up for the raminess of, of it all. It was so the raminess saves it all. But honestly, I didn't think the action scenes were that good. Like the Illuminati action scene was hilarious and fun and everything like that. But the you know the fight in Soho at the beginning with the weird with the like, weird giant octopus was one. I oh no, I loved that. Yeah, I was like, ugh, I was, I was so bored by that. I thought it was so silly, and it was very like you know it was like the James Gunn thing earlier this year, right, or last year. Zorro the Conqueror. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, the battle at Camartage, I was like, uh, they're like, our defenses are up. And then five minutes later, she completely decimated its place. And I was like, really? That's it? I, I don't know. There were just some times where I was just like, this is boring. This is boring action. Yeah, but but, but zombie Doctor Strange surrounded by, by evil spirits. And zombie Doctor Strange can pronounce his M's and his P's pretty well with, you know, when he's missing half of his mouth. I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah. He didn't have much lip, but he... 
He was very articulate. Yeah. For a zombie. Yeah, yeah he was the most articulate zombie. It, 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 it's it, fun. It's going to be a big hit. Everybody loves it. It's going to be great. And it deserves to be. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I can't wait for the Billy and Tommy spinoff movie. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's going to make that's going to be the blockbuster. And, and just just uh, just as an aside, the one thing that we got at the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin that you didn't get in your press screening or nobody else got was an exclusive Bob's Burgers song. Oh, God. That looks awful, that Bob's Burgers thing. Maybe, but I mean, the song was called My Butt Has a Fever, and that was fine. There you go. Anyway. Oh, my, that might be and, worth it. Yeah, and, and some multi, some version of, and some <laughs> one of the multiverses, Dr. Strange's butt has a fever. All right, Stephen, we'll be back to talk to you about the Avatar 2 trailer in a, in a few minutes. Okay. I am Our resident Koreaologist, if that's uh, the correct term, William Schwartz, is here uh, once again to talk about a show that's airing on Apple TV Plus that is based on a, a popular novel from a few years ago and has been getting some attention and a lot of critical acclaim, but not from William. He's written a couple of articles, highly critical of the show Pachinko for us. Uh, William is here with me today to talk about it. Hello. Hello. So I will admit I have not seen Pachinko. So and I'm also like not even remotely as familiar with the intricacies of Korean culture as you are. You were a reporter uh, living in Korea for many years. So maybe start off by uh, explaining what some of your uh, criticisms of the show are. I understand your criticisms of like the nonlinear narrative structure, and I share that criticism across the board with you in general. But but sort of there's some very culturally specific things that you write about on the site. Well, where the where the real genesis of the issues come from is that Pachinko the Show is based on Pachinko the Book by Min Jin Lee. And it is not a terrible book by any means. It's been reasonably popular among literary circles, circles especially among uh, the AAPI set. It is the story of Zainichi Koreans, which are Koreans who immigrated to Japan in the 20th century. Technically speaking, using the word Zainichi Koreans for the show is kind of an anachronism because Zainichi refers to the legal status that they had after the war ended because after the after World War II ended, they were no longer uh, considered to be Japanese citizens, which put them in a bit of an odd legal limbo. But before the war ended, and for pretty much the entirety of the Japanese occupation of Korea, Korean people were considered to be Japanese citizens, so they had freedom of movement. Okay, so it's a show about... Koreans who have emigrated to Japan. It's not, it is a story about Koreans who have emigrated to Japan, but the bigger issue is it is the story of Koreans who have emigrated to Japan as told from the vantage point of Korean Americans and to a lesser extent, South Koreans. They act as if they have an intimate understanding of what the immig- particular immigrant experience is for this kind of time period. Um, both in the 30s and in the 80s, because we're in two completely different eras, the temporal confusion thing mentioned earlier. The thing is, if you are familiar with the actual Zainichi Korean history, um, or just the general Korean history of the first half of the 20th century, you do not get the downtrodden image. You get you see, get an image of a lot of different Koreans from a lot of different backgrounds fighting like hell against the Japanese, and they fail, obviously, 
they're from a wide variety of backgrounds. And the, the reasons for why this happened are kind of complicated. If you, if you want to pick one big specific one, uh, the one to go for would be the huge extent of collaboration of Koreans with the Japanese for their own personal economic interests and how this outweighed more of the working class concerns, more of the nationalist concerns, because a lot of Koreans did, in fact, benefit big time from the Japanese occupation. They basically, and such Koreans basically ran the country for most of the latter half of the 20th century in South Korea. In North Korea, not so much. Um, the relevance of this in terms of Pachinko is you do not get the idea that there was any kind of serious resistance against the Japanese at all in Pachinko, not because not because the Japanese empire was good or because the oppression of Korean people was good, but just because they were completely helpless. All right. So what I'm getting from you here is that essentially what Pachinko does is it um, – takes a complex history and simplifies it and bodlerizes it in some ways uh, to sort of fit a, a soap opera narrative. That is actually a really good way to put it. I mean, for me personally, it's very much prestige drama television and it, it's award bait. It's definitely designed to get awards. And yeah, in my capacity as a reporter on the South Korean entertainment uh, industry, I'm always on, I have to be on the pulse of, you know, K-drama fans worldwide, but the ones who really love K-dramas and like are huge fans of Lee Min-ho. The lead actor. Correct. The actor Lee Min-ho, who is Ko Han-su, uh, the Zainichi Korean turned um, Yakuza. And instead of being a guy who takes ownership for his decisions, he's basically this helpless guy in the face of racism who is forced to join the Yakuza because otherwise the mean racist Japanese would get him. But the nice, not so racist Yakuza Japanese were willing to accept him. And it's just like that the show going out of its way to make us feel pity for a guy who is a criminal giving him a tragic backstory. And it's really weird. That part was not in the book. So, so, but what you're saying is that Pachinko matches the sort of beat by beat or the standards of prestige drama of like American TV prestige drama, but not of what you call K-drama. Yeah, that is definitely, that is definitely, in, well, that's a genre issue. It's not aesthetic. Like that's not the reason I don't like the show, but this is why K-drama fans have been extremely uninterested in it because if you're a fan of K-drama, it's probably because you don't really like American prestige television, among other things, because K-dramas tend to fill a pretty specific niche, particularly in regards to uh, romantic comedies that you don't really get um, in most other in most other countries' uh, television culture. It's just such an interesting idea that this is essentially a show about Koreans in Japan but it's made by Korean Americans. And if I read your critique correctly, the Korean Americans are misinterpreting the history of the Koreans who immigrated to Japan. They absolutely are. I mean, something important to understand about Korean Americans, these are people who throughout their lives have to just endure with gritted teeth anytime somebody mistakes them for Japanese. It's like a huge insult to them. So of course they think, that this is the worst thing in the world for anybody to call them Japanese. And they project that idea onto the Zainichi Koreans, completely oblivious to the fact that Zainichi Koreans consider themselves to be Japanese. They think they have a right to be there. They're like Mexican-Americans who consider themselves Americans because they are. Exactly. Like these are the really problematic undertones that you can only really see if you're engaging the show from 
like a broader perspective. Like, I mean, I mentioned racial essentialism in the articles, and this is part of the problem with the ideology. It pretty much forces you into the position of having to accept the same fundamental assumptions on what race means as, say, white supremacists. This has long been a criticism of the work of Tan Hesey Coates by uh, such people as Cornell West, that if you're going to engage in that framework, if you're going to say, yes, the Koreans are, if you're going to say that race is, is entirely distinct, that there is no sort, if there's no spectrum, if there's no sorts of cultural spectrum, then what you are pretty much saying is that it's unchangeable, that people who are racist will always be racist because that's just a part of who they are. And Min Jin Lee has mentioned this in an interview, actually, that she really, that she does not consider uh, economic explanations of historical exploitation to be valuable or correct, which yeah, it, it explains a lot about her work, although I really should emphasize the Pachinko show is much worse than the book in this regard because the book, she doesn't go too far. She doesn't try to make any broader statements beyond what immediately relates to Sunja and the various descendants in her family. And the Pachinko TV show really doesn't do that at all. We have, at the end of the fourth episode, I believe, this outrageously melodramatic scene where this opera singer... She sings opera to the amusement of all the Japanese people who are on this ferry boat. And then she kills herself while singing a traditional pansori song. And it's, it's incredibly goofy. The funniest thing about this is that the actress that they picked to do that, she is in fact an op, she, she works in South Korean opera. The very bizarre message of this is, well, the Japanese forced the Koreans to abandon their traditional culture uh, in order to do this thing that the Japanese like, which is opera music, apparently. Again, no, obviously no research done as to what music was actually popular in Japan in this area, because if you do that, you find out that it's basically early trap music is popular, that there were a lot of very popular Korean singers because the Korean gisangs did a lot of this music. It's subtle history that is being completely missed that's really important. And if you try to interpret it in a more literal sense, this real life person, this actress, she is an opera singer. Like if it's oppressive for a Korean person to sing opera music instead of pansori, then logically this person is also being oppressed because she chose that for her career. But that is completely ridiculous. All right. Well, all I know is that if you are looking for nuanced discourse on the TV show Pachinko, Book and Film Globe is your primary source. William, you've done a great job covering this show and we we look forward to seeing some articles from you in the future. Maybe not maybe not too many more about Pachinko. And we may we may have hit our limit, although there is a season two. I and we have no idea when it's coming out. It's weird because Lee Min Ho was recently announced for a new romantic drama. And I, I have no idea how much whether they even bothered to really check his schedule that seriously. It seems like he will probably be busy in the near future, but who knows? I'm sure his fans are far more excited about uh, the space tourist romantic comedy than they are about the second season of Pachinko. I think I am as well. All right, William, thank you so much. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. has been treated at long last to a trailer for the sequel to Avatar, which came out in 1977, <laughs> the original Avatar. And we've been waiting 
for almost 50 years for James Cameron. <laughs> Didn't it kick off the 3D rage of the 1950s? Uh, yes, yes. It was in Smell-O-Vision. Um, <laughs> and and uh, Stephen Garrett saw a preview. They showed this to you before you saw the Doctor Strange movie. I saw it also before the Doctor Strange movie, which I, which I paid to go see. And, you know, it looks just... I hate Avatar. I was like, I Sam Worthington's a terrible actor. I, I I loathe the Navi. I found the whole the whole vibe of Avatar to be completely off putting and annoying. Um, I mean, yeah, visually it had its moments, but oh my god, here we go. Well, you didn't see it in three D, did you? You no. didn't get the polarized glasses for the no. trailer you saw. No, you with s- the hoi polloi. You, you saw it in three D, huh? They handed out the, yeah, it was high frame rate, and they gave out the Polaroid glasses. It was in the special Dolby Theater. At the, How was that? Uh, forgettable. It was completely forgettable. I agree with you. I don't like Avatar. I think it sucks. It's a bad movie. But I'll tell you this. If, I could, if, I could, if this helps illuminate things, it helped for me. I saw it when it opened that Christmas weekend, whenever it was, all those years ago, back in 1712 or whenever the hell it opened. Yeah. We saw it. Uh, it was in 3D. It was not an IMAX. And as I do when I see movies, I was paying attention to the story. And I thought, this is the stupidest story I've ever seen in my life. And the acting is awful and the dialogue is bad. And I just, this is a painful, painful experience. And then it made a bajillion dollars. And then like a month later, I was like, I guess I missed something, you know? 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. So I went to a proper IMAX theater and saw it on like a Tuesday afternoon or something. And you know what? I thought it was dazzling. And the main reason was I was not paying attention to the story anymore. <laughs> and I just let the images wash over me. And I thought, wow, this is technically a, an amazing feat. It's an incredible accomplishment visually and orally. The whole sound design and the music and, you know, uh, especially the the rendered effects were just incredible to watch. But boy, what a turkey of a story. Yeah, it's a, obviously it's a skillful piece of filmmaking and it was a groundbreaking in the in its use of CGI and Cameron is James Cameron is a, is a master of using 3D, but yeah, the the story and and the story for Avatar 2, it's like, "Oh, wait. So the person who became the Navi, now, now there's a family." Yeah. Yeah, we have like baby kid, avatar kids, and and they go oh and and, and they go underwater. <laughs> Big deal, great. Maybe maybe it's going to be a spectacle again, but it, to me it looks like kind of a mediocre video game, like a like a family friendly video game. You know, like where's the story? How do you get four more movies out of the 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 world of Pandora? Yeah, you know, they're with their. Is there going to be a magical underwater tree? This time? <laughs> That's right. I forgot about the magical <laughs> or, or like, you know, some kind of magical whale. That is Maybe. A whale that's also a tree. A whale tree. You, you got to admit, Cameron makes really good sequels. Although he's never, I mean, even sequels to his own movies. So you can't, you know, you can't count it out like he could. No. Maybe he's got some some great storyline up his I loved, I loved Titanic 2. Titanic 2 was amazing. <laughs> Who knew? Back to the Berg. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Berg. <laughs> Avatar Five, Avatar in the Hood. I mean, how are people gonna get like care at all? I don't know. It, it's the weirdest thing to see a movie hit so hard uh, financially in, in pop culture and then leave no impression at all. Like Titanic, you got the sense that was a phenomenon. You got the sense people were talking about it, writing about it. Like they'd refer to it when they were writing about kind of pop culture or whatever. And Avatar disappeared. I mean, it honestly was like eating Chinese food. Two hours later, you're hungry again. Like, 
where did it go? It's like we all had amnesia. Well, but there's no, there's not going to be any escaping it for the rest of our lives. There's going to be five of them, and they're going to, and he's going to drag this out until he's ninety years old. It's bizarre. And you know, the the star of of Avatar, Sam Worthington, has been in nothing. No, I know he's done nothing, and he's been nothing. I mean, look, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I don't want to diss him, but you're absolutely right. It's not like his, you know, it, it launched a career of any magnitude but he's never been a good actor the movie's not known for his acting well no there's no acting in it they're all like these cgi cat people <laughs> who, who ride these 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 flying dogs around and now now they've got some sea dogs i hate it <laughs> how, how is how is so you saw it with an audience like a paying audience that was expecting it or were they surprised when they saw it uh, i don't reality? know i it the, the theater wasn't didn't exactly erupt in glee <laughs> You know, people were like really psyched to see the Thor Love and Thunder trailer. Hell yes. But uh, it feels like a, a duty. Like, it, like it's a like, <laughs> like a civic duty. Oh, I thought you said duty, not duty. Well, it does feel like a duty, but it also. <laughs> but it feels like like an obligation. Let's put it that way. Like we're obligated to pay homage to this movie. I don't know anyone who likes Avatar. I, I know no one. It's not like you see Avatar posters like in, in kids' dorms room, dorm rooms when you're like, you know, watching some college movie or something like that. You know what I mean? Like no one refers to Avatar. Nobody talks about Avatar. What the? Who cares? Any pop culture franchise, major one, Marvel, DC, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings. I mean, the Game of Thrones finale was widely derided. But as soon as they announced a prequel series, you know, there was there was there's been quite a bit of buzz about it. People are still excited to see what they come up with. You know, it's like these are our universes that, you know, Yellowstone, which we've talked about on this on this show. You know, that's <laughs> if they made a Yellowstone movie, people would be crazy for it. You know what I mean? Even Downton Abbey. <laughs> I know. Exactly. There's the Downton Abbey universe. Look, maybe there's like look, Avatar is clearly in a literal universe and maybe they're going to get off Pandora and get a little more spacey with it. I don't know. I could see either Cameron or the people at Fox, now Disney, saying, you know, this is the highest grossing movie in the world and yet there's no IP for it. We need to create a universe of sorts so that we can milk this for all it's worth. And maybe Cameron's thinking, this is my legacy more than Titanic or Terminator. Yes, I prefer both of those products to Avatar. I, I, I don't know why he's doubling down. He's like quadrupling down on Avatar. Like, no, no, no. This is the one I want to like milk out into five movies. I mean, we could be wrong. I guess we'll be wrong. I don't know. It's a real moonshot. But but I don't think we're wrong. I don't think we're wrong that it sucks. I don't think we're wrong. I don't think we're wrong. It, it, the story will suck because Cameron's stories generally suck. And the dialogue is always bad. Um, I've yet to see like a very, very brilliantly. I mean, aside from I'll be back and I'm still a feast of baby. But, you know, it's not like we're quoting true lies to each other. And Titanic has the worst dialogue ever. I guess. Although you, you know, pay me like you pay me one of your, pay me like French, one of your French girls, girls. you know? Um, yeah. I, maybe maybe uh, maybe Jake Sully the Navi will say that to Zoe Saldana. And that'll, that'll... <laughs> or maybe he'll rope in Kate Winslet. Or wait, wasn't she in it? Is there a rumor that she is in this? I don't know. Does she play the magic? Was she floating in the water? She plays the, she plays the magical whale tree. <laughs> 
Look, I think it's a good sign that Jermaine Clement seems to be in the cast. So maybe that's, you know, maybe it will have a life, a little sense of humor about itself. Maybe he'll sing a song. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll play the crab from, <laughs> from Moana. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. That'd be good. All right. Avatar 2. Coming soon. Coming in December, whether you want to or not. Exactly. And we'll, Stephen and I will probably be talking about it again. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. I, I should hate you, but I guess I love you. You've got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea. All right, Stephen, thanks so much. The new Avatar movie is coming in December, and then there'll be three more Avatar movies after that. So I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be just as good as The Secrets of Dumble Griff or whatever that Fantastic Beasts movie was. Sequels no one wants. Sequels no one cares about. Still going to make six billion thousand million dollars. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com and I'm also the host of this podcast thanks to Stephen Garrett and to William Schwartz for joining me this week we'll be back next week with more fresh, hot, delicious content we will talk to you soon we'll go because we're suckers. Yeah, well, it's a professional obligation, Stephen. There you go. Okay, that's right. Yes, and not not that we're not suckers. No. This professional not, obligation. Not in the least. <laughs> Can't fool us twice. Yeah, no, no. Let alone five times. <laughs> five times over the next 27 years. <laughs> and then we'll be dead. The devil and the deep blue sea. Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.